him like a spear. You may be seated. Father, we pray this morning that you'll dissolve our frozen hearts. That by the beams of your divine love, Lord, we know that you can warm our hearts, and we pray, O oh Lord, that you'll do it. Lord, we come in here with frozen hearts, and they need to be thawed. Lord, some of us come in here with hearts that aren't just frozen. They're like a rock. And Lord, we need you to give us new hearts. We need you to show us that the gospel takes hearts of stone and returns to us hearts of flesh. Because the one who became flesh, Jesus Christ, became placed in the sepulcher made of stone, in the tomb made of rock, that we might, by his merit, rise out of it and the glorious good news of his resurrection. Lord, I pray this morning that you will renew our hearts and that this new song that we just sang will be an anthem for us in the years that go by, that you'll help dissolve our frozen hearts and that worship will be for us not just an event on Sunday, but it will be a banquet table. It will be a list of Sundays. It will be a lifetime of Sundays where you remind us that you are the God who thaws broken, frozen hearts. Lord, we pray today, not just for our own hearts, but we pray for the heart of our community. Would we cry out to you for wisdom on behalf of our city council to guide and lead our city well during these tumultuous days. We pray for Rodney Ray and his wife Karen, that you will be with them. Pray that you will draw near to them and that you will remind him that he is not alone, that you're with him. But I pray for Doug Bonebreak, our mayor, and for the rest of the city council, Lord, that you'll give us, uh, you give them wisdom on how they should best navigate these, um, uh, this virgin territory for the city. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us as a city to continue to support our city council and to continue to strive to make this place like the city of God. Lord, would you do it? This is going to take a work of your spirit. Lord, people look at Owasso right now and they wonder if they should set their business up in this town because of how divided the city council and the city seem to be. So Lord, I pray that you will bring us together under the headship of Christ and that you will provide. Provide wisdom in City Hall, we beg of you. Lord, not just at City Hall, we pray for the Supreme Court that has a full docket this week. Lord, they're considering issues of marriage. They're considering issues of uh, the voting act. They're Lord, their docket is full. We pray that you will give wisdom to our justices as they provide order over our nation. Lord, we pray also not just for our city and the world uh, and the country, but we pray for the world, that you will help us to continue to live out the Great Commission and that we'll participate in the Great Commission not just by supporting missionaries, but by us going to our neighbors this week, by us being the hands and feet of Christ. Lord, we live in Shadows of your love, a love that surpasses knowledge. Lord, help us to extend that love to those with whom we have influence in town. So, Lord, we pray that you'll renew us, our heart, our community, and the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's confess the faith that the Lord has given us by first confessing our sin. And you'll see those words in your bulletin. And on the screen, let's confess together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. You, O Lord, have mercy on us, miserable offenders. Spare those, O God, who confess their faith. Soar to those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to humankind, Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, sober, glory of your holy name.
hear the words of assurance and pardon. As David said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And the Lord's hand was heavy upon me as though by the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Friends, know that we are forgiven. Be at peace. One of the um, things that we do as a church is that we make sure that we have an accountability. That we make sure that built into our polity as a church that's in the Presbyterian Church of America means that we are people who are connected to a larger church. I became Presbyterian uh, after um, growing up in another, another denomination because I saw in the beauty of our church government a kind of accountability that I craved as a young seminary student. And that accountability is shown, I think, most clearly in what we call the General Assembly. And the PCA is structured with local church sessions that are local elders that are over each individual church. But those elders are part of something called a presbytery. We are participants in the North Texas Presbytery, which runs all the way from us to the north down to Waco in the south, Waco, Texas. And every year, all the PCA pastors get together for an annual meeting called General Assembly that took place just this week in Greenville, South Carolina. There were about 1,100 uh, PCA pastors and ruling elders there. And at General Assembly, we don't just get together and, and, um, and pray and fellowship and talk about our churches, although we do a good deal of that. But we actually vote on issues that are very important to the theological preservation and purity of the denomination and so at general assembly you you go to a room that is like a huge conference center and every man there wears one of these funny tags and we have to remind each other after you leave that assembly hall take that thing off because when you're walking around downtown greenville it doesn't look very good when you've got this conference tag on and you wear these tags onto the floor and mine says uh, t.e blake altman which means teaching elder that's what i am as a pastor, and you have one of these funny-looking cards, and you vote by raising these cards. That's how they count your votes. And so I wanted to, in this Trinity Vision moment, just tell you a couple of things about what happened at General Assembly. And I'll just mention three things. One of the issues that was important to our missionaries is an issue called the insider movement. Some of you may be familiar with this language, but the insider movement is when you're a missionary in the Middle East, and you are trying to help tell Muslims about the work of Jesus. When you open the Bible, what word for God do you use? And the question is, do you use Allah as the right interpretation of the English word God, or do you not? And so the insider movement is a movement where people want to preserve the culture of Islam, and so when they read the Bible, they just replace the word Allah where they see the word God, and it's a way of them helping communicate the gospel in language that's accessible to the Muslim people. And there are another group of people that say, no, you shouldn't do that because the word Allah is so um, ensconced, it is so saturated, it, is, it means Islam. And so you can't possibly use that word for God because it's confusing to people when they understand the nature of grace. And so there was this great debate about what we should do. And... Um, there was a long debate on the floor. Good men on both sides were talking about what you should do. And ultimately, we voted to send it back to the committee so that they could refine it and they could actually a answer some questions that a lot of us were really struggling over. And so that was an issue that we're going to see again next year at General Assembly. The insider amendment is going to come back to us. Sending it back to a committee often happens when you don't have absolute clarity on an issue because we want to make sure that we're uh, as crystal clear as we can be. Um, another issue that uh, came up at General Assembly was um, something that the North Texas Presbytery had presented, and uh, it was about the Sabbath. What exactly does the Westminster Confession of Faith mean when it talks about the Sabbath? For example, it says that there, you know, you shouldn't recreate on the Sabbath. What does that mean? Like, can I go on a jog on Sunday? Well, I believe you can, and, and I took an exception to that when I became ordained. But the question is, so 
to what extent should we define what the Sabbath means for our people? And are we guilty of breaking the Sabbath as a denomination? And um, because that means a change of the Westminster Confession of Faith, that overture or that, that agenda topic um, was um, rejected because they thought the confession spoke clearly enough for that, and they allow a wide range of interpretations of what that means, and they want it to be left to the individual presbytery when you're ordained to help men understand what's allowable and what's not. Does that make sense? See how that works? The third thing was the most exciting, and then I leave it for the last because it was the most um, life-giving for me. There are a group of friends in the PCA whom I'm very dear, and we met on Wednesday night for a dinner at the Lazy Goat in downtown Greenville. It's a great restaurant. And uh, these are people, there are people there with names that you'll know, like there were about 50 of us in the room. And um, um, Jeremy Fair was there from Christ Present Tulsa. And um, another pastor that you probably have heard of named Tim Keller was there. And um, Skip Ryan and down in Dallas, he was there. And a guy who is a, a great example to me named Ray Cortez in Florida, he was there. And we basically talked together about what the future of the PCA looks like. Where is it going to be? And one of the things we talked about was the browning of America. Now, that's, that's kind of funny language to hear. What, what we mean by that is that um, we are quickly becoming multicultural. But if you look around many PCA denominations, even ours, we look pretty similar. What would it be like for us to be able to allow, not just invite people, like the, but actually to allow them to change the way that we understand what church service looks like. It's kind of like if I were to, to invite you over to my house and say, you're welcome to come stay with me. And so you show up at my doorstep and you're like, you've got all your stuff, right? You have, you have your clothes and you've got your car and you've got your food. And, and I say to you, oh, well, come on in. And you say, well, great. And so you start to get your bags. And I say, no, no, leave your bag. I got clothes. Well, what about my food? I got food. What about my I got I got transportation. And so oftentimes we tell people, please feel welcome to come be a part of our church. But we actually don't make the space for them to bring their culture and their clothing and their language and their, their sense of life with them. Do you see what I'm saying? So many times in the evangelical church, and especially in the Reformed Church, we say, oh, we want to be open to all people. Just leave your bags on the porch. So what would it look like for us at Trinity to reflect the community? There are a lot of people in Owasso who don't look like us, who don't live in the houses we live in. And we want our congregation to have not just the invitation, but actually make the space in our service to make it more accessible. And one of the ways that we're going to do that practically is over the course of the summer, you're going to see our bulletin change. And our bulletin now, if you look at it, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty weird compared to other church bulletins. It looks very formal. But it's going to change in that it, the content's going to be the same, but the presentation is going to be more accessible so that people who didn't grow up in a Reformed church or aren't used to reading a confession of sin are able to understand why we do it. And so you can have a lookout for that as the summer goes on by. But GA is a wonderful thing. I'm humbled and honored to be in this denomination. Um, every church, no matter what they tell you, is in a denomination. You can gripe about them all you want, but churches become denominations unto themselves because everybody has to figure out how do you do church. And everybody has friends that they talk to about how to do church. And whether it's formal or informal, you're all a part of a denomination. We just want ours to be clearly structured. We want there to be great accountability. So you should have great confidence in your denomination. There are magazines that are out on the pews called By Faith. It's the magazine of the PCA. Take that home and read it. You'll get a better sense of where we're headed as a church. Let me pray for us and pray for our denomination, and then we'll read each other and prepare for the message. Father, we thank you that you have taken this church, the Presbyterian Church in America, Lord, and you are helping us continue the line of Reformed thinking and Reformed preaching because we know that our hearts are frozen solid and that you have to take us out of the freezer of ourself and you thaw us in the presence of the heat 
the white-hot heat of your beauty. Lord, thank you that you are um, beautiful, that you're believable. Lord, even in a young church plant, a church plant that wants to plant other churches, but I pray that you'll begin to work in us according to your good pleasure. Thank you for the accountability of the PCA. Thank you, Father, for the structure and the thinking and the prayers and the relationships that have defined us as your people in this one sliver of Christianity. Lord, we pray that you'll continue to bless the PCA and preserve her. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and greet somebody that you haven't seen in a while. Moms and dads, take your children and go to your left to Children's Church when you get out and you'll find a host there to greet them. Guys, actually take your kids to the right. To the right. They're going back to the old gym. I'm so sorry, Anna. To the right, not to the left. If you have a Bible, grab it. We're in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, 11 through 21 is the pinnacle of the book of Ephesians. Everything before Ephesians 3, 14 points to it. And everything after verse 21, the end of the third chapter of Ephesians, runs downstream. So let's give uh, our attention to the reading of God's word as Maddie comes and reads it. If you're willing and able, let's stand. Now my knees Father, family in heaven and on earth is mine, that according to the riches of his spirit in your Christ may dwell in your hearts through that you, being grounded in have strength to comprehend with all the saints, breadth and 
height and depth. Know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, pray in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Father, we pray that you'll take these words and in the moments we have together, that you will change our hearts, that you will take our frozen hearts and that you will thaw them out and that those of us who are dead, you will bring alive and those of us who need your grace certainly need. You will change our hearts by the power of a love that surpasses knowledge. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul was a Christian, but he no longer went to church. We chatted in the Detroit airport Friday night as we waited for our flights. He uh, had a young son at home. He had a newly minted marriage. But the evangelical Christian crowd of the Midwest where he lived seemed shallow. What's the point, he said to me. He had grown up in the church, and he went to summer camp. He was an Awana's kid. But somewhere along the way, life caught up with Paul. And what he had learned about Jesus didn't seem to have the answers. He was tired of religion. He said, it's hard to know where I flamed out on God. My mother keeps quoting to me this verse about how God works all things out for the good. But she's just weird. And it makes her seem shallow, he said. Is this all there is to it? I guess I'm kind of burned out on religion. The text that Maddie just read in Ephesians chapter 3 is the apex of the book of Ephesians. As I mentioned, everything before it points up to this prayer and everything after it flows downstream. The church should have been pumped They should have been jacked up and ready for what they were called to do. This letter, remember, was written because Paul wants to lay out for the church what the church ought to be. It was not motivated by any other controversy. Paul didn't have somebody, you know, sleeping with the wrong person. He didn't have somebody who was a heretic. Paul, just as clearly as he could, said this is what the New Testament church ought to look like. But as he gets to the end of chapter 2, Uh, Two, he begins to realize that as we become the church, we can often grow discouraged. And these guys were discouraged about Paul being in prison. And so he says to this church, this is my prayer for you in the midst of discouragement. Paul prays that they would be strengthened lest they burn out. Anybody here burnt out? Anybody here need to be strengthened? When you begin to gauge, listen to me, the effectiveness of your Christianity by your circumstances or by the level of your happiness or by the level of success or by how well your children are obeying you, it's not a function of if you're burning out, but when you burn out. And in this passage, Paul gives us three insights into how to experience continual gospel renewal, how to go from defense to offense with the gospel so that you don't flame out, but you actually catch on fire for Christ. And before we come to the supper, I'm just going to mention these three things quickly, and then we're going to linger together at the supper. Here's the first point. Three things that Paul teaches us about burnout in the Christian life. Number one, you will burn out unless... You understand that Christianity is not a race. It's a family. Notice what he says in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father in heaven, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. We have a father. We're a family. When Paul wants to encourage the church, he doesn't say to them, man, just keep running the race. Keep going. 
He says, you have a father. In 1997, there uh, was at the Iron Man in Hawaii, this famous, it is like the most famous triathlon finish ever in triathlon history. Sean Welch and Wendy Ingram had just finished over 100 miles in a triathlon. You know a triathlon, right? You swim, you know, 2.4 miles, you bike a lot, and then you go run a marathon, right? Sign us up. So they've traveled over 100 miles, and there's a YouTube video. You should, you should find it. It's, it's cruelly funny because of how tired they were. They come to the last 100 yards. They can't feel their legs. They know they're somewhere. They're looking through, like, this gaze of half hysteria, half blurry exhaustion and sean is beating windy and she is probably i don't know maybe 100 yards in front of her and you begin to see you begin to see it start to happen and she begins to walk like a duck and her legs begin to freeze up on her and she falls backwards she's so tired and she gets up and she looks around and she sees you know, her assailant coming behind her. And so she gets up, and she comes again, and she's walking. And Wendy is behind her, and she's running like a duck. After 100 miles, she's just doing whatever she can do to get across that finish line. It looks like she's on rollerblades because of her gait. It's the funniest thing you've ever seen. And she comes right behind Sean, and Sean is so tired. Sean is a woman. Wendy is a woman. She is so tired that she falls down again. And Wendy, in her attempt to dodge Sean has no strength to move laterally, and so she falls. And there they are, 25 yards from the finish line of the Ironman in Hawaii. And these two women, like musical chairs, stand up and fall down, stand up and fall down, until Wendy just says, forget this. And she has enough mental acuity to just crawl. And so the last 25 yards, you see this incredible world-class athlete who has not a calorie in her body to find and burn. And she crawls. And then you see Sean look up and go, that's a brilliant idea. And she crawls. And these two women cross the finish line, one after the other, absolutely exhausted. And what's funny about that is that it's so ridiculous. And what's... um, Amazing about it is their determination. It's to be respected, isn't it? It's an unbelievable finish. I met Cheryl several weeks ago when I was at another airport, and she went to a large church in Tulsa, and she was going through their Bible, uh, their Bible training program, and she overheard me on the phone praying for one of you, and we began to have a conversation, and she told me where she went to church and what she was doing and, and how her life was really coming alive for God. And I said, well, tell me about it, Cheryl. Tell me how your life is coming al- alive for God. And so she launched into it. She said, well, I get up on Mondays and I read my Bible for an hour. And then at noon, I go to this Bible study of women, and it's so great. And then we go to this class at our church, and we just dive into God's Word, and we feast on it. It's wonderful. And then on Wednesday nights, I go to this music thing. And then on Thursdays, I go to another class, and I learn. And she tells me this litany of the ways that she is trying to live out the Christian life. And I said, well, why do you do this, Cheryl? What is What is so motivating you? And she says to me, without batting an eye, because this is how God shows his favor toward me. By by going to these Bible studies and reading my Bible and partaking in all of these wonderful resources, God begins to love me. And it's a love like I've never experienced before. And I, I said to Cheryl, Cheryl, do you think God loves you more because you go to Bible study on Wednesday afternoon? And she said, well, that's a kind of a weird question to be asked by a pastor. I said, sure, do you think God loves you more because you have a quiet time in the morning? And she began to think about it for a minute. I said, do you think God loves you more because of how, what a gift you are to him? And slowly the wheels begin to turn for her, and she began to realize, you know what, Christianity is not a race. It's about being in a family. It is good to love and read God's word. And I hope that all of us love and read it well. 
It is good to study theology and to know it well, and I hope we know it well. But the mark of the Christian life is not your knowledge, it is your love. And you cannot know that love unless you first recognize that Christianity is not a race. It is belonging to a family. And frankly, very few of you believe that. Because hardly anybody in Owasso does. We go to church because that's how God loves us. It's also a place to pass out business cards. We go to church because that's how God shines his face. That's not the biblical reason why we gather together. Friends, brothers and sisters, we gather together because we are a family. And what did you do to become part of this family? Absolutely nothing. The most powerful families in the world, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, the Gates. There's a story of, of Junior Rockefeller. That's John D. Rockefeller's son. John D. was senior. His son was junior. And one day, Junior is deciding where to go to college. And he doesn't feel like he's lived up to his family name. And his father, John D. Rockefeller Sr., the one who is responsible for hundreds of organizations, thousands of real estate developments. He's the founder of Standard Oil. He was the first billionaire in history. John D. Rockefeller looks at his son, Junior, and he says to him, Junior, don't you ever tell me you don't think you can measure up. Never forget you are a Rockefeller. For some of us, the father says the same thing to you, but he doesn't say it with a judgmental eye. He says, never forget, never forget, no matter how insecure you are, that you are a child of God and that you did nothing to deserve it. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that. Verse 4, Ephesians 1 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Tell me, what did we do to get God to love us? Absolutely nothing. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And it was God who came to us. It's always been that way. In Genesis chapter 3, it was God the Father who didn't turn a blind eye to Adam and Eve, but he said there will be one who will come that will crush the head of the serpent, although he will bruise his heel. At the end of Genesis, Jacob blesses his sons with the promise of God's deliverance. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. In Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and we shall call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All the way through Scripture, you hear God washing over us the unbelievable promise of his radical pursuit of sinners like you and like me. Please know that Christianity is not a race. All of our type A's out there, it is not a race. It's about being in a family. It's about being who you are in Christ. And it's about the fruit of your life reflecting the root your connection to your Father who loves you. Second, you will burn out in the Christian life unless you understand from this prayer of Paul's, you understand where true power comes from. Listen, true power does not come from within our hearts. When I was listening to Paul tell me his story in the Detroit airport, I could not help but sympathize with him. In my calling as a pastor, as a church planter especially, we flame out a dime a dozen. The New York Times had an article not long ago when it said that members of clergy now suffer from obesity and hypertension and depression at rates higher than most Americans. In the last decade, their use of antidepressants has risen while their life expectancy has fallen, and many would change jobs if they could. 13% of active pastors are divorced. 23, 25% don't know where to turn when they have a family or a personal conflict or issue. 
33% feel uh, are burnt out within their first five years of marriage. 45% of pastors' wives say that the greatest danger to them and their family is the physical, emotional, and mental tax that comes on them by being the pastor's family. 50% of pastors' wives say they have no close friends. 70% of pastors say they have no close friends. 1,500 pastors leave their ministries each month. 1,500 people in ministry leave ministry every month due to burnout, conflict, or moral failure. Doctors, lawyers, and clergy have the most problems with drug abuse and alcohol abuse in this country. Did you know that? And the pastors are the professional Christians, right? There is no such thing. And if pastors forget the gospel, they fall headlong into sin very rapidly. And Paul himself knew that as he progressed in his own ministry. Paul begins to call himself a sinner. And by the time you get to 1 Timothy chapter 1, the very end of the books that he writes, what does he say? I'm not just a sinner, I am the chief of sinners. The longer that you walk in your relationship with Christ, the more frozen you see that your heart is. You think you had it thought out, but you didn't. And God continually melts your heart by the white-hot heat of his love for you. And we need to remind each other of that. We need to remind each other that you need most of all to recognize that your spiritual power, the power for continual renewal, does not come from your own self-discipline. It can't. Because not one of us are disciplined enough. Not one of us are holy unto the Lord. This reminds me of a story, a short story, um, by Flannery O'Connor. Some of you may have read it. It's one of the greatest short stories in American literature, they say. It's about a country. It's called A a Good Man is Hard to Find. It's about a family who travels cross-country to Florida on a vacation. Kind of a, it's kind of a, um, it's kind of a cruel story. You'll hear, and they get stopped. They have a flat tire. Their car breaks down, and up upon them come a group of escaped prison convicts, and and one by one, this this man named the misfit takes these this family and he kills them, and the last person alive is the grandmother, and the grandmother, you know, is this incredibly wretched, hard woman. At the very end of her life, for the first time in her life, when she sees that she's about to be killed, she softens up and she becomes this amazingly delicate, frail old lady. And sadly, they take her and they they kill her too in the woods. And then the misfit says this. She would have been a good woman, the misfit said, if there had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. And what she means by that is that somebody needs to remind you. They need to remind you again and again and again that you're hard and that you need the threat of a bullet. You need somebody to come to you and hold you accountable and say, you haven't arrived. You haven't arrived. You're not always right. King Jesus is your power. King Jesus is your strength. And this must happen again and again. You must experience continuous constant renewal. Paul says in verse 16 that our power comes from renewal from the Holy Spirit. Look at your Bibles if you have them open in your laps. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. You are strengthened through his spirit. It is not the amount of faith that you have. Owasso, it is not the amount of faith that you have. It is the object of it that makes you a Christian. John Newton wrote a letter many years ago. John Newton, the same one who wrote Amazing Grace, wrote a letter to a man who was asking him, how do I push through the discouragement in the Christian life? And Newton said that when you begin to ride the highs and lows of Christianity, when good circumstances in your life tend to take you up with them, and the bad circumstances tend to bring you down. Newton says that such persons 
rather than having incredible faith, actually their faith is too weak. Such persons are very weak in faith, he says in the letter. Their confidence arises rather from the lively impressions of joy within rather than from a clear and distinct apprehension of the work of Christ. By repeated experiments and exercises, we learn that we are nothing, we have nothing, and that we can do nothing but sin. And thus we are gradually prepared to live more out of ourselves and to derive all of our sufficiency of every kind from Jesus, the fountain of grace. We learn to trust less in our own strength, to have lower thoughts of ourself and higher thoughts of him. Nobody's telling you to have low thoughts of yourself. We're not telling you to think less of yourself. We're just telling you to think about yourself less. To think of Christ and all of his beauty and allow what he has done for you to drive you. Newton continues, Every day shows him more of his own heart and more of the power, sufficiency, compassion, and grace of his adorable believer. But neither will a full understanding of the contents of his heart nor a full apprehension of the beauty of Christ be complete until we get to heaven. Listen, everybody is powerless. I ran out of gas the other day mowing my yard, and I left my lawnmower in the middle of my yard, and I went inside, and my kids came out, and they jumped on my lawnmower, and they pretended like they're driving it. A lot of us do that with a Christian life. We're sitting on a gas tank that has nothing in it, and we're pretending like we're driving the Christian life. Oh, we go to church. But do you know that the power that strengthens you to live as God intends is found by the renewal of the Holy Spirit? He says it right there in verse 16. You will pretend to be a Christian. You will pretend to walk with Jesus until you recognize that the power to live out the Christian life does not come from yourself. It comes from continual renewal by the Holy Spirit. As Keller, Tim Keller says, it's, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A to Zs of your faith. You don't just tag the gospel like you're rounding first. You go back to it again and again and again. You will burn out of the Christian life unless you understand, number one, that Christianity is not a race. It is an identity. It is about being in a family. You will burn out as a Christian unless, number two, you understand where your true power comes from. And you will burn out unless you understand, lastly, verse 17 through 19, you understand where your true security lies. Verse 17 through 19 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul here says that you are rooted and you are grounded in the love of your Savior who cares for you. Do you know what it means to be rooted and grounded in his love? It means that you experience the riches of the Father's glory, which has been made manifest to us through Christ who dwells with his people. The present, if you will, that God gives his people. That he gave his people all the way through scripture and he gives us today. is not a list, a checklist of how you need to live this out in order to obey God and thus make him love you more. The present God gives us is his very presence, which is found in the incarnation of Jesus. When Christ came and took on flesh, he was the presence of God, fully God and fully man. And he did not leave us on our own. And do you know that the way you experience renewal is by bathing in that presence. Friends, do you take time to just bathe in the presence of God? When's the last time that you read the Bible just because you wanted to read the Bible? The last time you actually just sat down to pray for your family 
Not because you wanted to check off the box, because you really wanted to pray to your Father. Friends, He loves you like a son. And if you are going to not burn out, if we as a church are not going to burn out, it means that we've got to understand what it means that Christianity is not a race. It's a relationship. It is an identity. It's a family. And how do you foster a family to spend time together? You don't have an agenda. You just do life together. And I think that's something that we have to learn. Because Owasso does not foster life together very well, does it? We live and work in Tulsa, or we live and work in Skytook, or Claremore, or the surrounding communities. We live in Owasso, but Owasso becomes like a launching pad. We want Owasso to become, for us, more like a family meal. A place where you come to get renewed, and energized, and strengthened. Because the presence of God meets us at Trinity in a very powerful way. And what would it be like for us as a church to be so enamored by how beautiful God is that our congregation doesn't just become more diverse, but we begin to open up space for other people to become part of us? That we feel more comfortable inviting people that don't look, act, smell, have backgrounds like us to be part of us. C.S. Lewis was one time walking across campus with a friend at Oxford, and... um, this beggar came up to him and asked for assistance. And his friend walked by, but, but C.S. Lewis pulled out his wallet. And his friend said to him, Jack. That was what his friends called him. Jack, he's just going to spend it on booze. What are you doing? He's just going to spend it on alcohol. And C.S. Lewis looked up at his friend and he goes, well, exactly what I was going to spend it on. <laughs> like, what would it be like? If you actually love the world, like Christ calls us to love the world. There's a friend of mine named Shane Wheeler who pastors a church down in Atlanta called All Souls. He wrote a book called The Briar Patch Gospel. And in it he wrote this. I met Charlie a few months ago when he came to All Souls. I happened to walk past him after the service, so I stopped and I said hello. And the fear that shot through his body when the preacher stopped and talked to him was almost visible. He seemed certain that the Inquisition was about to begin. With a few minutes, I learned that he was new to town, didn't know anybody, and was nervous about his job. He also fully expected that we would not want him in our church. It took a great deal of courage for him to let down his guard, especially so quickly, but that's just what he did. You see, Pastor, I'm one of those boys who likes to kiss other boys. I, Shane says, I tried to hold it together, but I just couldn't. I began to laugh, and I said, wow, is that how you tell people you're gay? I've heard it said a lot of ways, but that's a new one. And he squirmed, and he kind of let out a nervous laugh, and I could tell that he was waiting for me to ask him some uncomfortable questions. Is he celibate? Did he have a boyfriend? Had he read Leviticus? And then explained why he wouldn't be welcome at our church unless he changed his ways. It was pretty clear he was expecting judgment and rejection. Instead, I looked him in the eye and I said, you are welcome here. And I'm guessing you don't need me to tell you what the Bible says about homosexuality because you probably know it better than I do. But being gay doesn't put you in some special category of sinner. It just means that you struggle to follow Jesus like I do. And you and I are both called to conform our lives to the righteousness of Christ. And you and I are going to fail miserably at times. But I'm willing to walk down that road with you however long it takes. And I want you to walk down my road with me. Paul thought his mother's religion was very shallow because she just kept quoting Bible verses at him. And he burnt out. Because he didn't see in his church a kind of love that reflected the God the preacher talked about. Do you teach your children to make space for those who are different than you are? I don't just mean who are walking in sin. I mean 
that are different culturally, that are different from you? Do you make space to learn their culture, to adapt to them? We will not grow as a church unless we recognize that. That there is space at the table for you no matter where you come from. Brothers and sisters, we are a family. This is not a race. We do not need another rat race. The power does not come from within us. It comes from the spirit that the Lord has given to us. And unless you understand where your true security lies, you will burn out because our true security lies in the one who became for us the very presence of God in our midst. And you know how he reminds us of his presence? He gives us a meal. And we turn our attention to it now. Because in the Lord's Supper, it's not just bread and wine. It is special not just because, oh, here's a church that actually serves wine for communion. It's special because in the elements, Christ shows us that he loves us. He is spiritually here to remind you of his love. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Friends, hear your Savior singing over you his great love. And come and linger at the table. Lay down your checklist of the rat race. And experience the banquet table of his grace. And you will experience, over time, the limitless dimensions of Christ's love for sinners like you and like me. And as we begin to remind each other of that, we become the church that Paul desires us to be, that Jesus desires us to be, a church that loves out of the limitless love that we've received in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you tell us that Christ in us is the riches of your glory, that it's a mystery. And Father, we pray now as we come to the supper that you'll remind us that you're with us. Thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.